Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Some people say that sports and politics don't mix. Sports and politics writer Dave Zirin and Seattle Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett got together recently to test that theory. Mix it up they did. The two had a lot to talk about, and not just concerning sports. Dave Zirin has the distinction of being the Nation magazine's first sports writer in 150 years. Utney Magazine named him one of 50 visionaries who are changing our world. Michael Bennett is a Pro Bowl MVP, a Super Bowl champion, and the founder and president of the Bennett Foundation, whose mission is to fight obesity. Michael Bennett spoke with Dave Zirin at Town Hall Seattle on January 5th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Garfield High School teacher and activist Jesse Hagopian introduces the discussion. Please note, this talk contains unedited language of an adult nature. Yeah. Yeah. Where are my 12s at? Where are the 12s tonight? <laughs> Where are the students at tonight? We got some students in the house? Excellent. We're the activists and organizers in the house. We got any there? Yeah, we can do this like a social justice tailgate party tonight, right? (laughs) Yes, this is quite uh, a unique evening that I'm really excited. My name is Jesse Hagopian. I do teach at Garfield High School. I'm an editor for Rethinking Schools magazine, and it's my honor to uh, introduce this discussion between award-winning nation sports editor Dave Zirin and Seattle Seahawk Pro Bowl defensive end Michael Bennett. Dave Zirin is the host of the popular weekly radio show Edge of Sports Radio. He has written a number of books on the intersection of sports and politics and culture and social movements, including A People's History of Sports of the United States and Brazil's Dance with the Devil. Um, And Michael Bennett is, uh, well, Michael Bennett. (laughs) Black Santa, yeah, number 72. um, Made his Seahawks debut in 2009 as an undrafted free agent before being claimed by Tampa Bay. He's been back since... 2013, and prior to his time in the NFL, Bennett earned all district honors as a senior at Aleph Taylor High School. He was a full-time starter in 2008 for Texas A&M. He also happens to be a Super Bowl champion and a two-time Pro Bowler, Um, so I'm really excited for this discussion tonight because, well, for many reasons, but I think that for many of us, 2016 was just a terrible year that ended in the worst possible way, right? We had a racist, sexist uh, Donald Trump become president. And uh, I think as horrible as that is, it shouldn't blind us to the fact that 2016 also had moments of remarkable struggle and inspiration, right? We saw um, a lot of that struggle and inspiration take place uh, in the sports world this year. And I'm not just talking about the Chicago Cubs uh, victory. 
I'm talking about the protest that, that we saw on the courts and the field of play. We saw Colin Kaepernick make it plain with his anthems of protest. Right? Um, and we saw how those protests swept across the country on fields and courts um, and on campuses and high school campuses, even middle school uh, campuses where students took inspiration from that uh, and, and delivered their own message. And I saw that so clearly at my own school. At Garfield High School, the entire football team took a knee uh, in protest. Right? In protest of an American flag that promises so much and delivers so little, especially for our students of color and our black our black students. And it, it didn't stop with the Garfield football team, right? We, we saw the marching band take a knee, the cheerleaders take a knee. We saw it spread to the girls' volleyball team and the girls' soccer team took a knee, and it became a site of resistance and rebellion on our campuses. And Michael Bennett came right into that struggle because we organized a day called Black Lives Matter at School Day. Did anyone see that here in Seattle? And it was a couple dozen social justice teachers that said, we are going to stand up and wear Black Lives Matter shirts and teach lessons about institutional racism in our schools that day. And we thought, well, we hope a few dozen other teachers will join us in this struggle and 3,000 teachers later, we had a mass action across Seattle that I'm happy to say now is spreading to Philadelphia and to New York where teachers are taking up the same action. And, and Michael Bennett came to our final rally that day to, to say to the students and the teachers of Seattle, you are right for taking a stand, for risking something, and for declaring that black lives matter. And um, to, see, to see him uh, over the course of many years speak out on so many important social issues and then to come and validate the struggles that we were doing meant a lot to me personally and, and uh, to the movement activists and educators in this city in a way that's hard to, to even describe. And so I think that sports is often looked at at a place where Politics are at best ignored or places where openly reactionary ideas are allowed to fester. But I think as Dave Zirin has brilliantly reported on over the course of many years and especially this year with the revolt growing, um, places like uh, from Texas to Oakland, California and right here in Seattle, we saw sports become really for the first time in decades the center of dissent. And there are few athletes who have embodied this on a bigger scale than Michael Bennett. But in a world of sound bites, we rarely get the opportunity to hear what people like Michael Bennett think about these issues in our world, right? And he, he takes the opportunity more than most to share what's on his mind and, and what's in his heart. But so oftentimes it gets filtered out in our soundbite culture. But that's going to change tonight, because uh, we have Dave Zirin here to begin the Q&A, and it won't end with him because we'll have some time for the audience as well um, to ask questions. And uh, 
kick off the, this beautiful discussion. And so I say, let's make Century Link Field sound like a library tonight. <laughs> and uh, let's give a warm town hall welcome uh, for Michael Bennett and Dave Zirin. Wow, that's loud. That's loud. This is loud. Wow, was that for me? Those applause? That's crazy. Um, so th thanks for coming out, Mike. I know you don't have a lot going on these days, so I appreciate. <laughs> no, no, we don't have nothing major going on these days. Nothing too much. Just no. a light weekend. Well, kind of like the 49ers who got a bye week this weekend. Oh. <laughs> Damn. For every Michael Bennett zinger, you take a drink, by the way, <laughs> tonight. No, it's an honor to be here with Seahawk, Pro Bowler, and Parent Map cover model, Michael Bennett. Man of many trays. <laughs> no, this is beautiful, beautiful picture. So let's start this off. I love that we're doing this because it's a chance to get beyond sound bites and actually have a political conversation with somebody who I think has shown himself to be a uniquely interesting political athlete in a year that has seen a renaissance of political athletes. So th in all seriousness, man, take, I mean, take a second. Thank you for making the time a couple days before the big game. Oh, no, nah, thank you, man. Talk to us. Thank God. I didn't think anybody was going to show up. When I came out, I was like, thing. whoa. <laughs> when I came out, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, like a Seahawks crowd, only uh, smaller. But... <laughs> so this shouldn't be too rough for you. Um, so I just wanted to start out. To me, this is the question that frames all of this. And I don't think you're going to get this question in Seattle because Seattle is kind of awesome. But you're going to have people who say, why are you doing this? Uh, shouldn't athletes just shut up and play? What do you say to that statement when people say athletes should not be concerned about politics, should not speak about politics, they should just shut up and play? I think, I think it's kind of – I think it's – it's, it's a stupid concept anyway because most of the time people want to consider athletes as just being a part of the sport, but they forget that we are a human being and we are part of the society and we can't, you know, take ourselves out of it just simply because we make money or simply because we have a lot of fans or simply because we get all the, we do a lot of nice things. At the, at the core of everything, we're still just a human being and we have family members that are part of any social issues that's going on. So I think it's just stupid. They, they just want us not to be a part of it, but we have such a you know, a great platform to be able to share, you know, interesting messages and a change, to, a, ch a chance to change lives. And we, it's a big responsibility, but at the same time, it's a responsibility that we are capable of and we all want to do great things with it. But when people want us just to be, you know, just a part of the brands and sell things, it just gets, it just becomes, it, it just makes you go crazy because it's like when it's time to speak about things that are great, they won't let you do it. But when it's time to sell something, it's like everybody's pushing you towards it. And it's just, mm -hmm. and it sucks sometimes. Yeah, it, it's so interesting when you think about Roger Goodell and the NFL. Yeah, we're going to go there, by the <laughs> way. Um, and about what they think 
over on Madison Avenue about all these NFL players who've spoken out, who've made gestures during the anthem, who've spoken out at press conferences. Because the NFL, as people might know, is sometimes called the No Fun League. They'll <laughs> fine players for wearing the wrong color shoelaces, spitting the wrong color tobacco. And yet, during these protests, the NFL has been hands off. Do you think that's because they are supportive of athletes speaking out, or do you think it's because they're scared huh? if there, there will be a backlash if they speak think they, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's that side of it where they're silently, you know, you know, being a part of it and letting the guys do what they want to do. But it's also the issue of there's a I think there's a big chance that there could be a lot of backlash because there's so many brands that's supporting and pumping out, pumping money into the NFL. And certain things are are touchy. You know, you can't really talk about certain things when it comes to certain brands. So, you know, with a lot of players, too, that's a, it's a touchy subject, too, because at the end of the day, everything in America is about your brand right now. It's about your Twitter. It's about your Instagram. It's about your Facebook. In a time period about this, you really can't. Once you say something, you can't take it back. And if all of a sudden you're you're a, a Bernie Sanders supporter and, and and you lose fans, you can't all of a sudden change and say you're a Barack Obama or you can't. You don't have time to change anymore like you used to because your message is just spread out. And I think the NFL is definitely just wants to stay out of it because they don't want to have their brand, you know, attached to certain things. And yet you're doing press conferences wearing a, a Bernie Sanders <laughs> baseball cap. So, so. <laughs> well, I mean, for me. I mean, for me, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't really care, really, honestly, because at the end of the day, I, I can't really live my life worried about, you know, what people want me to be or what I should say. It's all about what I feel. And I think that's what makes me a human being and makes me a part of what's going on, because it's like I feel it and I have to talk about it, because if I don't, then I, would, I wouldn't be being myself. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, in the, in this, the show business world, celebrities that really can't be themselves. They never did the whole time they're acting. Well, for me, it's just I'm just being me. If I see something and I'm a part of it, if it's an issue and I want to talk about it, then I feel I feel like I'm obligated to speak upon it. Yeah. You, what you just said, it sounds so much like this famous quote, my favorite quote, actually, from Muhammad Ali, who once said, like, the press was hounding him about, why do you think this about the civil rights movement? Why do you think this about Vietnam? And he got so frustrated, and he just looked at him, and he said, I don't have to be who you want me to be. <laughs> exactly. Mm. It, so, so let's, let's get to the nub, as uh, my friend John Carlos likes to say. Um, everybody I know who is political, and I'm sure most of the people in this room have an origin story. You know, like Luke Cage or Daredevil. You know, you got your, your superhero <laughs> origin story. You know, maybe it's uh, a family member. Maybe it's a book you read. Maybe it's an experience you had where you just said, you know what, I'm going to be conscious, I'm going to be woke, I'm going to do something about this world. What's your origin story? Why are you you? Um, I think my, my mom was, um, she went to a historically black college. And then so I grew up, you know, reading about all the different things that happened and all the different things um, that happened in America. And one of my punishments growing up was re to read the, read the encyclopedia. So I had a lot of time, <laughs> I had a lot of time to, you know, absorb a lot of information and, and <laughs> I was I was grounded a lot, guys. Just just say. <laughs> so I had a lot of time to absorb a lot of information, and and doing that, I you know I started researching, and as I got older, I started researching more and more, and I just I just love the 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 time to be able to look at things that happen and be able to you know have the opportunity now to go back and take all the information that I absorb and be able to try to create change now. Wow! And, and there's a book club in the Seattle locker room, right? Yeah. What are y'all reading? Right. Oh, 
Well, I mean, right now, you know, I've been doing the kids' book club, and we were re recently reading The Hatchet, and and before, and this last one, I've been um, reading um, Kareem's last book, you know, so, which was a pretty interesting book, and, you know, if you guys didn't get Kareem's book, it was, it was, it was a nice book. Yeah, I mean, Kareem's an interesting guy. Like, he wrote a book all from the perspective of Sherlock Holmes' brother, <laughs> and, and, and then a lot he wrote of a book about, yeah. And he's seven foot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I interviewed him. They made me sit on three phone books, seriously, so our eye level would be the same. Well, can we get some phone books so he could be the same height as me? <laughs> get 10. I want you to feel like a man tonight. Yeah. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. It was weird. <laughs> it was strange, un undoubtedly. Um, it, it does raise a question, though, about you know, the Seattle locker room. I mean, it's, it just seems, and I think people here would agree with me, that it seems atypical. To put it mildly, it seems like a uniquely open place, especially by NFL standards. And is that because you have a coach and management that's like, let's just let the room breathe? Or is it because there's a set of individuals in there who are uniquely open-minded? Or is it because maybe you're in the city of Seattle and it's just something I, in the oxygen? I think it's all a little bit of all three, honestly. But, you know, for, you know, when you have a coach like Pete Carroll who, who has been in some of the craziest neighborhood, you know, going into the South Central, you know, getting players to come play for him, and, you know, going all across America and walking into, you know, a lot of African-American homes and telling their parents that I'm going to take care of your son. You know, he built, he, he's built up a trust, his trust there. And he understands that people are different. And I think a lot of times in the NFL or just coaches in general, they want, they want the player to personify who they are. You know what I'm saying? So when you have a coach that's uptight and you have a coach that has certain certain things the way that he does, players tend to want to be there. If they want you to wear a suit, he wears a suit, he wants you to wear a suit. But P is the totally opposite. He's an open-minded person. And him having been able to be open-minded has let people, you know, be, them true, be their true self. You know, you see it in business. You look at Google, Amazon, and all these businesses, Facebook, and they're, they're letting people dress the way they want to dress, letting people talk the way they want to talk, letting people bring their kids to work. And that's all Petey's doing. He's bringing, creating an atmosphere where people can be themselves. And while doing that, he, he has opened up a lot of doors for guys to speak upon issues that are going on. And we have a locker room that's full of tons of characters, you know. I, literally, they're characters. We've got a lot of guys in there. And, you know, when, now that they have the platform to actually speak their mind, it's, it's letting them grow into men. And I think a lot of times, you know, you go into situations where they want you to be a man on the field, but they don't want you to be a man off the field. And that's hard, to, that's hard for people to grow. Now, people may be aware that Michael Bennett's got a brother who happens to be a pretty damn good NFL player by the name of Martellus. Clap if you even knew that, that he has a brother, Martellus. Um, I'm pretty sure they saw the E60. It was the most watched E60 ever. What, really? Yeah. Are you, is it the one about your brothers is the most watched E60? Yeah, it was about both of us. Oh, okay, yeah. My bad. <laughs> the two Bennets. Yeah, it was, it was about both of us the most watched. Now, I'm, I'm sure you guys speak. I mean, is, you know, people often hold up the New England Patriots as, like, the model franchise uh, they frankly make me itch a little bit, um, but uh, yeah, I forgot where I was for a second. My bad. Um, you know, that's a touchy subject. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, is it different in Belichick land in terms of like locker room culture? I think so. I think it's one of those things where he just don't want people talking about 
you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Just don't talk about what they're doing on the field and what they're going to be doing in the game. And I think, I mean, it's, it's smart if you think about it. Why, there's a lot of times where I go look at what a guy says, and I'm like, oh, they're really going to do that. Like, he just told us what they, well, just told us the game plan. And Belichick doesn't want like that. You know, he's a, he just wants you to, if you have things that are going off the field, you can talk about it. You know, my brother, it's a perfect place for my brother. He, he loves football. And then on top of that, he could be himself. And, and that's all a, a human being can ask for, really. That's really good. It's, and people, I'm sure, are aware, you know, Bill Belichick, he wrote this uh, letter to Donald Trump about how much he loved and supported him that got read the week of the elections. It, <laughs> it, yeah, this is quite a crowd, my goodness. Um, it, and it was so interesting because later that week it was Patriots, Seahawks. Yeah. It was the only loss the Patriots had all year with Tom Brady. Yes. God bless America! No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I was watching that game wondering if, you know, the Patriots were a little bit side-eyed to their coach. Like, man, it's been quite a week, Bill. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you want that 100%, huh? Yeah, um, give you 60. Yeah, still give him 60. Um, like, but honest question, though, how would that have played in your locker room if you knew that the coach was basically like waving pom-poms for Trump that week and then came in and was like, all right, fellas, let's do this? I think I don't know. I think it's one of those things where you want him to be able to, you know, say what he believes in at least. But at the same time, I think you're going to be a little disconnect because you're like, well, there's a lot of stuff going on in in America mm-hmm. right now. You, how could you support that coaching? But at the yeah. same time, you have this job, and I think it'll just be like a crazy dilemma. I don't know how those guys did it. I didn't ask my brother. I was because I thought it would be a long story, and <laughs> I was like, let's not go there. <laughs> but I think it'd be super. It'd be a hard. It'd be a hard thing to talk about because at the end of the day, it's something that's touching a lot of a, a lot of people, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's, cha- it's going to change the outcome of our children, and it's going to change the outcome of America, whether it's good or bad. It's, something's going to happen there, and you know, when somebody comes out and says something, like I said, he has to stick to it, and he st- at least he stuck to it. I, I respect yeah. that about him. Yeah, I mean, but the other thing too we got to say is that the Belichick Trump thing. That is a pimple on the butt of the politics of this NFL yeah. season. I mean, this has been the and, and less attractive. Um, this has <laughs> been the most politicized NFL season. It, ha- it has been ever. It all started with a knee, too. It all started with a knee, yeah. and that gets to my my question to you: Is like, what was your reaction when you just first heard? that Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee during the anthem and then talking to reporters about structural racism in the United States. I actually know Kaepernick pretty good. So, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but when I was actually surprised more about the outcome of how it changed what people thought. And for me, it was one of those things where it was a conversation that needed to be had. It was a, it was people needed to have that. It's been such a long time and there's so many things going on. And I think so many people in America are in different populations. If you're in the South, you grow up different. If you grew up in Seattle, you grew up, a, a, it's different up here than where I'm from in Texas and Louisiana. So it was one of those things where in Seattle, you might not see as much of the stuff that goes on down south. And mm-hmm. for him to actually start a conversation, not only just a conversation within the NFL, it was a worldly conversation. I mean, this mm-hmm. guy had everybody talking, whether it was they didn't agree with it, it was a conversation. And that was the greatest thing about it. And, you know, when him, when he started that, it was what I liked about it most was that it brought the young people together to start talking about things. I think mm-hmm. for a long time, the young people were just worried about, you know, the Kardashians and stuff like that. So, you know, everybody <laughs> wanted to, was Bruce this or was he this? And it was like, I don't know what to call him now. So it was yeah. like, you know, 
And it was one of those things, and it was one of those things where it brought it brought everybody just to have the conversation, you know. And the conversation, it was a good conversation because everybody was talking about it. You know, I turn on CNN, I see it. I turn on ESPN, I see it. Food Network, they were talking about it. It was just, <laughs> it, it was something that you know, for a long time, I just think that it was it was good that people started to pay attention to the things that are going on because for. If you really think about it, you know, you think about Emma Till, you think about all these things that happened, and a lot of people didn't get to see it because there was no there was no Periscope and there was no Snapchat and there was no Instagram. Now information is just at the snap of a hand, and people can't be a part of something that they were never a part of. You know, people were a part of the people getting hosed down. They saw some of it, but to actually see it, like, as it's happening, it, it changes your mindset on things, and I think it was, it was a conversation that needed to be had. And, yeah. And one of the coolest uh, codas, if you will, or footnotes to the 49ers season was their GM, Trent Baalke. It's well known he was feeding the press this idea that Kaepernick was dividing the locker room. And after the season, the team voted to give him the Team Courage Award, uh, showing... Oh, and, and Trent Baalke got fired. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the difference between Kaepernick and uh, everybody else, I felt like, was like... Everybody has their idea of what America should be like or their idea of what something should be, but nobody's willing to actually go out there and stand on that line. Mm -hmm. He stood on that line, whether it was a fine line that people disagreed with or people agreed with it. He actually stood on the line. So you got to give him respect if you didn't like him or not. He did something, and no matter what happened, the the people wanted to kill him, the people burned his jerseys, he he stayed true to his path. And forever, I'm going to have a lot of respect for him for that. Wow. Um, now, I don't like him as a quarterback. That's a whole nother story. I'll sack him all the time, you know, it doesn't matter. I hit him out of bounds. But as a man, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You brought the sacks yeah, to yeah, Kaepernick. Yeah. yeah. Um, so talk about, I, I know that, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but when Kaepernick started to do his thing, first sitting, then taking a knee, everybody was like, what are the Seahawks going to do? No, you know what's crazy? One of my friends, she's here right now, um, Ruth and Bill True. I was at their house when I was talking to Kaepernick, and and um, and we were talking, and she was killing us all. So I was like, I'm talking to Kaepernick right now. I'm, I'm trying to talk to him right now. And I was outside for hours, and so it was a big conversation because it was players from all over the league, and it was like, you know, 30, 40 players, and we all were just talking, and we were talking about what we were going to do. And, and it was such a big thing. And the crazy thing about it, at the end of the day, people were arguing. And, I, and like I said, I, I told them, I was like, at the end of the day, do what you feel is right. It doesn't have to be taking a knee. It, it could be doing a, doing a backflip. Whatever it is, whatever is your point of making a stance, let it be. We don't all have to agree on what the ideal of what we need to do, but we all have to agree on the message. And the message was that there was a lot of racial injustices going on in America. And as long as that message was, you know, out outsourced to everybody it would it would be great and I think but with the media they play so much into you know more about the need than they did about the message and I think that was you know that's propaganda at its best but you know that that was what we were trying to do and within the Seahawks locker room I mean literally coach coach Carroll had us together we talked for hours as a team as a team and you know, we took a lot of took a lot of flack because some people didn't agree with what we did. Some people didn't agree with what we did. But like I told people when I talked to the media, I got three kids, and at, and at dinner, if I ask what we want to eat, everybody's gonna want to say something. One's gonna say pizza, and one's gonna say sushi, and one's gonna say Indian food. So it's hard to get people to agree on something. But at the end of the day, we all agreed on one thing, and that's that. I 
I felt like that was a big start for any group of people to actually agree on one thing. We all agreed to lock arms because we wanted to bring, we wanted to bring the community together. I felt like for, we, people felt like for a long time, it was a, it was a disconnect between um, white and black. You know, there's this white side of it where people saw some of it and some people wanted to help change it and some people ignored it. So there's a lot of white players in our locker room who wanted to step up, like, you know, like Hoshka, you know, he was one of the main ones that wanted to do something because he's from a different, he's from a different America from then where I'm from, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And we're all from different parts of America, but we're all American. And at the end of the day, we all wanted to have something that we all agreed on. And it took hours. I mean, it took hours. People, it was the people where people had tears and it made people, it made me realize that at the end of the day, no matter how big and, you know, bad, the things that we do on the field, at the core of it all, we all feel the pain that everybody else is feeling. Mm -hmm. And that was, to me, was one of the greatest things. It was one of the greatest experiences in my life. It, to me, it was better than the Super Bowl. Because, wow. I mean, because the Super Bowl, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I, I plan on going there in Houston this week. But, <laughs> but it's something about when you could get a bunch of people or even a bunch of men to sit down and actually, when you built in America right now where, you know, where what being a man is e evolving and for people to be emotional about something or actually have an idea and you know you finally you you sit next to this person for four or five years and then finally you talk and you joke and then finally they open up and mm. it like it changes your mindset because it's like wow I never know you felt like that like dang mm. we all really are brothers like I didn't know you felt like that and then for me it was like it was just a, it was just one of those things where I, I, I would always remember that moment for the rest of my life. Wow and it And d does that also puncture kind of the football man code? This idea yeah. that we can't be emotional, we can't shed tears, we can't speak about issues that, you know, torment us when we're not here at the practice uh, facility? I think so. I think, you know, you, you're in a macho locker room, you know, and nobody wants to be emotional. I think vulnerability is the hardest thing for a human being to do is to, is to be vulnerable. I mean, and for everybody, for I know see God is, you know, knocking people out on the field and to see him shed a tear on just a thought of something that's going on, it really changes your mindset about that person. You see him, you first you saw him as a man, you saw him as this macho person, but then when you see him, you know, shedding this tear about this issue, you see him, you see him, you see him bigger than life mm. at that point of, at it because you see that at the end of it, like I said, at the core of all of it, he's, he's just like the rest of us. He's, we all see, we all breathe, breathe and eat and shit the same way. So it's yeah. like. Damn. We. We all shit the same way. That'll be the headline tomorrow <laughs> about this event. We all shit the same way. Is, is that under 140 characters? Can we tweet that <laughs> out, please? Um, you, you know what's so interesting is that that's so powerful. Like when you think about what you guys did linking arms as an organizing principle, as my friend Jesse says, like this <laughs> idea of how do you get the largest number of people to be involved in the same activity instead of just a couple of people yeah. doing a gesture. That's a powerful narrative. Why do you think that the narrative, as it was told by the sports media, like, oh, Kaepernick took a knee, but these guys are just linking well, arms. What was that misinformation about? Well, I mean, the, the easiest way to, to dis disable a whole bunch of people is to discredit everybody and turn people against each other. But like I said, at the end of the day, one thing that we talked about as the NFL and just in general with people was, don't let this be the only thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be about the organic truth. And the organic truth is about how we really plan the season, the communities that we're a part of. And for the Seahawks, it's, it's something we live and breathe. We're one of the most, you know, organized, you know, 
team, a group of people in, in the NFL, we all are a part of some, you know, organization or we're a part of something that we're giving back to. And that's what we wanted to imply to the whole NFL was like, yeah, we take this need, but what's the next step? Well, now we got the conversation started. How are we going to change the young, young people around America? How are we going to have them doing what we, what we want them to do? If, we, if all of a sudden I'm on this taking this knee, but at the same time I take money from McDonald's, what's, what's making me different? What's, what's, well, at the end of it all, what's making us different? Like, if we're going to talk it, we got we to gotta live it. And the hardest thing for people to do is to live it. I mean, that's the question, the thing that when you say you're going to do something, and all of a sudden you, you, you see us taking a knee, you know, and now we gotta, people want to check, check the facts. What are they doing? Are they in the community? Are they giving back? What, is, how, what type of man is he? You know, is he, if he's doing all this, does he take care of his wife and his kids the same way? So at the end of the day, it's hard for people to, you know, go out on that line and be vulnerable. Because once you become vulnerable, America's coming for you. You know what I'm saying? So you have to be ready for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the threads that we've already covered, like whether it's, the media saying Kaepernick's dividing the locker room, yet the team votes to give him the Courage Award. The media said, oh, the Seahawks aren't doing anything political, and yet you guys are having hours-long meetings and yeah, talking this stuff through. Yeah, we meet with the district attorneys, yes, governors, well, mayors. Well, like, I mean, we're, yeah, people I mean, are police, police commissioners, you know. People are, we, we're trying to make change. I mean, I mean for me, like, I, I swear, like, people always talk about, like, I feel like if I die and the only thing they talk about is the Pro Bowls that I went to, which are nice, and the Super Bowl champions that I did, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like people are discredited me as a person because at the end of the day, I want my legacy to be what I did in the community. How did I change people's lives? What did people see? Was he a man of his word? Was he the type of man when he said he did something? And would he go out there and do it? Would he, did he go out and speak to the kids? The, it, that's the kind of person I want to be remembered as. Because me, records are going to be broken. But the legacy you leave, it can't be broken. Because it's the truth. It's the foundation. It's, it's me. So, right. Yeah. I was thinking again about John Carlos from the 68 <laughs> Olympics. Because he's a dear friend. He... He said to me, like, look, if I hadn't have made the Olympic team, I would have raised my fist. It just would have been on 125th Street instead of Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, so it's that's about, so true. It's about standing up, not about yeah. being an athlete or who you are. It's not about that. It's all about, for, it's just about planting that seed for kids and getting them a chance to have something to make it grow. You know, for when, when we go out in the community, we do things. I, I see kids, and for me personally, when I go to the game, it's great to see people come to the games. But, like, when I'm in the communities, in, my, in the inner city, and the things we do around Seattle, and I'm back home, and I'm back in the small towns, it's, it's, for me, it's the greatest thing when you see hope. When you change in somebody, and, you, and they see, mm. when, in a game, people love me, love the thing, because we're all agreeing that we want to win this game. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? But for you to go in a community and actually see somebody change their whole idea of their life, change the trajectory of what they were going to be, and now they want to do something great. I mean, that's, to me, that's life, and that's what I call... That's, that's, that, to me, that's the Super Bowl of life, really. Mm. Wow. Let's, let's talk about uh, your sack dancing, if we could. Um, the one my wife won't let me do anymore. <laughs> your wife said you can't do it anymore? No, she said I can't do it no more. Oh, man. Cost me too much money. Uh, does that make you sad? Oh, man. Um, I, actually, I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right. You, you described your on-field dancing as, quote, Two angels dancing while chocolate is coming from the heavens <laughs> on a nice Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, wow. 
Um, but I get there is a question there, though. Like, what does it say about the NFL that they do try to so hyper-control that, that joy, I guess? I mean, it's not – I think they – I mean, you got to think about it. Like, in the NBA, it's one of those things where players are seen and the players are, are, are the league. You know, LeBron James is the league. Kobe Bryant was the league. But in the NFL, it's about the shield. It's about the integrity of the shield. So the, the time that people get a chance to be creative out there, you know, the creativity can't, out, can't outla- outlast the shield. The shield is the most important thing. So the NFL doesn't want too many people doing crazy things because mm. all of a sudden these people become their own platform. And, mm-hmm. and no, that, that would not happen. The platform is the NFL, and they want to keep producing and keep producing. I mean, it's a great business model. I can't, I can't knock them for it. But at the same time, you have to let us be creative and let us do the things that got the league to where it's at. Mm. Do, do you think they have that mentality, unlike the NBA, that, that the shield is what comes first because the injury rate is so high and if people start getting so attracted to seeing what, say, Michael Bennett does next and then you get hurt and aren't there, uh, I it think, pushes people away? Well, I, yeah, I think so. I think for – in the NFL, a lot of people, they only – you think about fantasy football, you think about all these things that the things people are making money off of from the football, which the players don't get any of it. I don't understand it. I've been trying to figure this out for years. But – uh People don't, I feel like sometimes people don't see people as human. I see people talking about, I watch TV and they just like, oh, just get rid of this guy. And, and I'm like, that guy has a family. Like, he has kids in school, he has a wife. And, and sometimes I think the fans, not that they do it on purpose, but they don't see the person as a human being. They see him as a player. You know, they, they look at the person and they, he tears his ACL. He can, he can come back in eight months. I'm just like, he tore his ACL. Like, that's like you, he, 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 he could get laid off so easily. And I think sometimes there's a disconnect between re- reality and, and non-reality, non- what, what's really going on, you know, because at the end of the day, they see the player catch the ball, but they don't see the injuries that people deal with. They don't see the, you know, the divide in the family, the time he f- spends away from his family, and they don't see him as being a human being. And I think, you know, the NFL needs to do a better job of, of showing that. And like you said, they, while, if they do that, then people become in love with the player, and they become in love with the they, – people love the players, but they don't love their injuries, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't love that a player has CTE. They don't love that Steve Gleason is in a wheelchair, you know what I'm saying, or a guy breaks his neck. They don't love that. They love the touchdown, but they don't love what comes with it because at the end of the day, everybody believes that these guys are making a deal with the devil. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? The deal with the devil is sometimes is great, but when it comes calling, it's one of those things where people don't have sympathy for you. Yeah, who, who's the devil in this case? What is the devil? Devil is the pain in the league, the pain, the things that come with the injuries that you that you deal with, with the, the hip surgeries, the knee surgeries, the, the possibility, the possibility to wake up and play in a game and think like, shit, I could lose my brain. Like this, yeah. I mean, that's crazy because you think about the word concussion. It's such, it's a word that's softened what the injury really is. Yeah. The injury is an injury on a brain. It's traumatic brain injury. It's a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Like. The normal American gets a, has a concussion. They're done for two to three weeks. They're at home in a, in a room. But in the NFL, you push the play on Sunday. So, but a lot of people don't see that part of the league. They don't, they don't see that. They dish in love with the, the fantasy part of it because it is fantasy, you know, guys to get 300 yards in a game. But it's, not, it's a nightmare when you have CTE. Mm. It, 
I mean, you, you have these like three beautiful daughters. Um, oh, I love them all too. Man. Yeah, they're, they're well, trust me, it's absurdly cute. Yes. By the way, people can look at this later <laughs> if they want to. But if 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 you had a son and he said, "Daddy, I want to play tackle football," what do you say? I probably wouldn't let my son play football at this point because simply because. The where, where I, how I grew up is different from how my kids are growing up. So I don't feel like they have to play football. I think, I think me having daughters is really is the best thing that ever happened to me personally. A lot, of people, a lot of people judge me and say, you know, they discredit me or they'll say, well, you don't have a son. I'm like, shit, who cares? Like, literally, <laughs> you know, and I had this conversation with my friends all the time. I'm like, I really literally have three people that don't have, they can literally do whatever they want to do. If I had a son, he would literally be limited to following my shoes and playing the sports, which are big shoes to follow, you know, but I'm not saying that he can do it. But, but my daughters, really, I, they, they can be whatever they want. They could be, they could be a scientist, an astronaut. You know, my daughter wants to cure things from malaria. My other daughter wants to be a dentist. One daughter wants to be, a, you know, a veterinarian. It's just that, that creativity to now that wow. they really can be what they want to be. And I, yeah. I enjoy that because now it's like, and my wife is like, you're like the perfect person to have daughters because I have great patience too. But I love my daughters. <laughs> they, 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 they do something better for me. They, they've created me to be a better man because, you know, now my feelings and emotions have evolved because now it's okay for me to be, you know, I don't have to be macho. I could, I could sit in the little living room and be in there watching girl cartoons and doing girl things, and it's okay. I'm like, I have daughters. It's cool. These shorts are short. I have daughters. <laughs> yeah. But I love my daughters. I think my daughters are really, you know, they're going to be something greater than, greater than me because I just, the things I did are just in sports realm. They really have a chance to change change life. So I, I, I'm excited about it. Every day I tell my wife, I'm like, oh, I can't wait seven more years. She's going to college and she's going to be this. So it's, it's, I enjoy it. Yeah. There's this famous uh, quote, uh, Buster Mathis Jr., who was a boxer, asked his father, Buster Mathis Sr., um, who was a boxer. He said, Daddy, should I box or play football? And his father said, Son, please play football because nobody plays boxing. Ooh. And... It seems like, and this was a quote from like 30, 40 years ago, and it seems like today we got to update that yeah. because you don't really, now that what we know about CTE and concussions, especially in youth sports, do we really play football anymore? No, you play life. <laughs> yeah. And, and are, I think, do you think we're going to a place where football is going to become practically gladiatorial, where it's only people who grow up in circumstances that they're looking to football as a way out, actually play it? I don't think so. I think, I mean, if you, if you look at how the NFL is made up, is 90% of African-Americans. And most of those African-Americans come from places that a lot of people in this room would not want to be going to, you know, right. the, the jungles of America. And, um, and though their circumstances have made them, you know, the type of people they are, which, you know, sometimes it worries me and the things that we talk about in the NFL because, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you grew up in this place. And I think sometimes people don't realize some of these athletes have grown up 22 years in a certain type of America. Mm. Then all of a sudden they push into this, this environment that they have never been into. You know, you take, you take, you take a, a kid from, you know, Miami, Dade County, mm -hmm. and you put them in a, a place like Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. You take them out of an all-black place and then put them into where they're all the minority. Some people aren't ready for it to be, to understand how to 
work with work with that work with that you know their environment and you know you worry about guys that all of a sudden they have this 22 years of this certain type of wave that they're living and now they push into this this pedestal to be something greater than they might not be ready for the time that's calling them to be that it might not be the time for them to be that person to be the role model that people want them to be and it's scary because you know people don't waste wait they don't if you make a mistake then that mistake can weigh on the rest of your life mm. and you mentioned your daughters before, and I know one of the issues you're involved in is uh, an organization uh, that's called Girls First. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about what you that know, is? It's, a, it's an organization that's in Seattle, and, and you know, they're pushing you know, girls' STEM programs for girls of color. And, you know, for, I mean, it, for me, now that I have daughters, I kind of see like what, you know, now what the women's rights movement was about. Because now I have daughters, and I'm like, this is true. It's like... You know, this is so, it's so real. Like It gets real very quickly. I'm like, you know, I, I just think about, like, I'll have a conversation with somebody, and I'll tell somebody I have daughters. And you know the first thing they tell me? Oh, you better get a shotgun. Oh, that's going to be hard. I'm like, why can't somebody say, like, you having daughters, man, you're blessed. Like, dang, they're going to be something great. But now if I have a son, they would say, boy, your son's going to be the greatest player ever. So it's like. It's one of those things where I wanted to be a part of an organization to be able to push girls and let them and support something that they can have an opportunity to, to do more than what, what, what they're allowed to do, you know? I, I got, yeah. And, you know, I, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I, I do hear that, too. You better get a shotgun as if your role as a father is to police your daughter's sexuality. And I'm like, I don't need a shotgun. If anybody messes with my daughter, she will fuck them up. Uh, right? I, mean, I don't, like, this idea that it's my job to do that yeah. is absurdly sexist. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's like, I mean, I mean, I feel like it downplays, it downplays the creativity or the, the ability for a young girl to be something better special not just like an instagram model or nothing's wrong with instagram models if there's any in here but <laughs> i'm saying there's this this is this greatness to women that you know that needs to be shown and letting them have a platform to be able to be something great and i'm like that's why i'm fine with not having a son at this point in my life because this is another journey that i get to be a part of and I, I'm, I'm i'm ready for it right on. Um, so we're going we're gonna to turn it over to, to y'all in just a second, but I have just two more fun, frivolous questions, and then we'll do that. Because uh, not, not that we haven't had fun, but... We have had fun. Oh, we're having some fun. But I did want to ask you this about... It, it's the dinner party question. <laughs> like, if you were going to have a dinner party and you were going to have a group of people around the table, living or dead... Okay. Who are you talking to? Sucks my, I, of course, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. I mean, of course, he just passed. Um, oh, man, there's so many great people. Uh, Malcolm X, of course. Uh, uh, Gandhi. Um, I wouldn't say Jesus, but just like, that's such a, like, everybody says Jesus type of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know if I want to say Jesus at this point. Um... <laughs> Not that I, don't get me wrong, I'm religious, but I'm saying this, Jesus is obviously somebody I would want to meet if I could, so let's, so he's, he's already invited to the other dinner party, then. Yeah, yeah, so, we just, this dinner party, um, we got, oh man, this is, oh, Nina Simone, because she's my favorite singer. Oh my God. Um, I love Nina Simone. 
I love her. Uh, um, I, I don't. I, the that's last a good person, list. You keep that's saying a good you don't list. Know, I mean, I could keep. I mean, it's so many different. Uh, I don't know. I, the last wow. person, um, not Tom Brady. No, I like Tom. I like. I mean, Tom Brady's cool, but he's not. I could. I don't. I don't think I want to have dinner with him. No, I know. I wouldn't want to. Have <laughs> I barely want to have dinner with my own quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, I, I like Russell. I'm just saying. I, I'm just, I, I, I sit my time. I don't want to have dinner with him. And. And, I, I, and then lastly, I wanted to ask you this. I know that, you know, you have thoughts about possibly writing a book. Would you read a Michael Bennett book out of curiosity? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I got a children's book coming out right now with my wife, which is called Beautiful Monsters with, um, about our kids and stuff. But, you know. <laughs> beautiful they're, monsters. They are beautiful <laughs> monsters because they yeah. can't be monsters at the time. My, my youngest daughter, she was a monster today for sure. I was like, yeah, you could have got three sacks today with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but. Oh, parenting. I don't know if you want my parenting test. They consider whoopings. <laughs> day one whooping, day two whooping. <laughs> Get them right. So, if you wrote, <laughs> don't don't you're not gonna get a whoop. Yeah, yeah, didn't whoop him then. I mean, whoop him. <laughs> if, if, but if if you wrote a a political book, what you don't want to say? You're keeping the title under wraps. I'm keeping the title under wraps because he's talking about my book that I'm I'm doing right now. So it's like okay. I, I don't want to share it just yet. It's you like it though. You you. Like I love the title. <laughs> Um, it was, I'll just say, it was, can I just give an approximation of what it is? Yeah, you can, yeah. It's basically called, like, How to Make White People Uncomfortable, which I thought was, I liked it. Oh. <laughs> well, everybody, give it up for Michael Bennett, please. Um. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Wow. Hey, I like you, man. I like you. you you're cool. <laughs> any, any, uh, so you got Q&A? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me tell you how this is going to work. If you've got a question for Michael, hey, or for myself. Yeah, All right, or for Michael. For um, <laughs> you can line up at the microphone. There's a mic here and a mic there. Uh, ask your question. Please keep it brief uh, so we can get as many people as possible. You look very Seattle-like, man. <laughs> so you can get as many people as possible. If I had to draw a cartoon, it'd be you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to... Also, I'm going to um, look back. I'm also going to, before people start, I'm going to alternate mic to mic. Um, okay. If you talk longer than a couple minutes, I'm going to tap right here. It's not a comment on what you're saying. <laughs> All right, maybe a little I'm bit. Go, you're um, good. You clarify on the, everything before. I should work do that at home. Yeah. <laughs> if I say no, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means no. <laughs> and, and, and also, I'm, we're, we're going for, uh, for gender diversity here. So if you see, I'm just looking at the lines. If you see a, a woman online or someone, um, if you can push them to the front, please, so we can make sure we get equal time on the voices. For example, I see someone third right there. If maybe you could go to the front right here. But you didn't we'll like start. that, huh? See? Women, women. <laughs> I'm joking. 
But we, we, will, we will start with this gentleman right here because he yeah. did run up to the mic with, yeah. a, with, a, with a fury. He, he looks like Seattle, man. He looked like a cornerback <laughs> blitz. Yeah. He's investing in REI. <laughs> so our, uh, our president-elect famously likened his expression about grabbing women's genitals to locker room talk. Um, I oh, assume that the Seahawks don't speak like that in the locker room, but do you see issues in the locker room with sexism and homophobia? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I think with the Michael Sam, um, when he came into the NFL, I mean, I pre- there's been a lot of athletes that have, have been, you know, doing what they do, and, you know, he came in and it brought up a conversation, kind of like Kaepernick did. And people talked about it, and I don't think anybody was really – they was really – were rude about it. They understood that people are different. And I think that was the thing about it that he brought up. It was just like, he's different and that's okay. And, and I thought that was pretty cool. Mm. The, I'll say the worst thing about Donald Trump calling it locker room talk is that he wasn't in a locker room. Yeah, he never played. He's not even, he's not athletic and nothing athletic not at about all. him. No, no, no. It's, it's, he's like the guy I would not pick. I'd be like, ah, take the guy in the wheelchair, not him. <laughs> I literally would skip over him if I had to pick him to play basketball. Oh, man. (laughs) Last one. Please, go ahead. Who were your role models growing up? Oh, my role models growing up? Well, my parents, of course. Um, Ooh, there's so many. Uh, Jim Brown. I loved Jim Brown growing up. Um, um, Just local people. My mom and dad. I had good role models, man. My mom and dad were pretty excellent people and to be able to have a chance to actually to live with my role models was the best thing ever and now growing up and now I tell kids all the time now you know dealing with a lot of kids and stuff like that and I always ask the kid I said why do you like me and they say and they say oh because you scored you did this and you sacked the quarterback and I say wrong that's the wrong reasons for somebody to be your role model like me because of the things that I've done in the community so I tell the kids when you pick a role model make sure that person is the person that they say that they are and so it's kind of hard, you know, being a role model now because I'm like, I must do what I say I do. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Morgan. I'm formerly with United Students Against Sweatshops, currently okay. a union organizer in Seattle. Oh, wow. Um, also winner of my fantasy football league. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I really like everything you're saying today, and I was just wondering, um, you know, I think it's exciting that folks... Uh, players want to make changes, and I'm wondering if you're involved in the NFL Players Association, and if so, do you feel like there's space to radicalize that association to make, you know, demands of folks at the top of the NFL, you know, team owners, uh, to be making changes? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, too, but a lot of people don't know, like, the business part of the NFL, too, because the NFL and the NFL's players are two different two different businesses. It's the NFL players and it's the NFL. And as players, I'm a part of the players union, and I, and I do, we talk about a whole bunch of different things. But at the end of the day, it comes to we have so many different players from so many different parts of the world. So many people, you know, their wealth is this. We got people like Tom Brady that's worth, you know, millions, hundreds of millions. And there's the lowest guy at the totem pole that's worth, you know, he doesn't make a lot at all. He's on practice squad. So to get everybody to conform to one idea, I can honestly say it's a challenge because at the end of the day, you know, the players are at the point where they don't realize that, that they are the true product and they are what makes the NFL go. And to actually beat them to not be slaves anymore, it's hard because it's like we are, we are what makes the NFL go. We are the commercials. We are this. We are that. We why the jerseys sell. And, and it's hard to get everybody to do that. And 
I don't know how long it's going to take before we all agree on something and we all agree that, you know, that we can take over the NFL and do exactly what we want to do like the NBA. Uh, but I think it's going to take a while because, like I said, we have to change so many people's mindset right now, and it's taking a lot longer than people thought it would. Mm. I, said, I, I interviewed uh, Brian Mitchell, great NFL player, and he was talking about why unions matter. And he, he said, we, we, we are so exploited in the NFL, and people don't think that because of the salaries. But, like, take a, a restaurant, and you got a cook, and a cook cooks a steak. In the NFL, we're like the cook and the steak. Yeah, we're just like, we're cooking ourselves. We really are. <laughs> yeah, I'd like you to um, expand upon the concussion issue. I mean, I, I know that in, in football, there's, it's been going on for yeah. quite a few years, and it's very developed, well-developed now. But I, I'd like you to expand, expand upon or at least discuss uh, the impact on, on, on high school sports, for example. Yeah. I mean, in, in the reading that I, I've read about over the last few years, I was surprised that there is a, a problem, for example, in high school girls' soccer, for pity's yeah. sake. I mean, it's really, uh, it's, it, it seems like, you know, professional football has made a big impact upon that. I think professional football has kind of been at the forefront of the issues because I think people can actually see what's happening to somebody. They can see somebody's body deteriorating right in front of their eyes. And when you do that, it's the reality of it. So people can see. And I think, you know, with high school football and high school sports, there's so many people coaching these sports and stuff that don't really have the background or, you know, have ever played the sport to be able to coach players the proper way of tackling, the proper way of doing something. So I feel like in high school there's so many issues with it because they don't have the proper coaching. They don't have the proper things. And the NFL, I just think it's just there's so many big, fast human beings running into each other. You think there's mm-hmm. 6'6", 300-pound running into a 6'6", dude that runs faster than the human being is supposed to be running, and then there's a collision. And I think, you know, there's so many issues with it because – this has been going on for a while, and now people can actually see it. You know, you look at those guys from the past, and, you, you know, junior sales, it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Those people in the 60s, the guys in the 50s, the 40s, the, the 30s, when they were playing football, and people didn't know what was going on with them. They just thought, I mean, this guy's just crazy. But little did we know that he was sick. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. His brain was sick, and he couldn't, he couldn't perform, so what did he do? He took his life. Mm-hmm. And and that's the scary part of the concussion issue that I think the NFL is trying to they're trying to be a part of it, but nobody wants to be associated with death. Mm-hmm. Because when you associate with death, it scares people from wanting to play the sport. If all of a sudden everybody, if I'm talking about the issues that can happen to a young boy, what is it going to do? Is it's going to ruin the future money for the NFL? You know, young people aren't going to want to play anymore. So they're trying to, you know, they're trying to do great things with the heads up program and trying to do better job of teaching people how to tackle, but there is the issue, you know, of, of it just being what it is, and it's mm-hmm. a dangerous sport. Yeah. No, that's right. So. Hey, uh, so you and, you and Dave talked about three things that uh, kind of intersect to me. One of them is social justice, CTE, concussions, and also the shield. And one thing that, it, to me, that kind of wraps all up is uh, the issue of marijuana in the NFL. We know that it helps with CTE. Yeah. We know that NFL makes a ton of money from pharmaceutical boner pills and booze ads on every Sunday. And we also know that uh, uh, more, a lot of African Americans are put behind bars more than whites on this issue. So yeah. if you were the commissioner, uh, what would you do with the issue of marijuana in the NFL? And what is the, uh, the talk in the locker room with the Seahawks about this issue? First of all, I do not smoke marijuana. <laughs> Before I, anybody can say that, I smoke marijuana. I, I never partake, okay? But um, 
Um, I think it's something that you know, it can heal the body. And if there's a chance that it's a, it can heal the diseases of the what, what, what players are dealing with, I think we have to open up the doors because at the end of the day, you know, we, we they give you oxycodone, they give you all these pills that mm-hmm. are part of a pharmaceutical things that, that are natural. And, you know, you have this substance that has the capability to change lives and change the, you know, make it the pain tolerance of players. And, you know, as a commissioner, I, he's, they're stuck in the middle because they can't make money from it right now. And uh, whenever they can make money for it, trust me, it, it'll be a commercial. If they had, like, some The Shield edibles or something, yeah, it would trust be... Trust me, when the time is coming, it, I mean, yeah. it always gets me because it's like, Michael, you cannot do a Budweiser. You're, you're, you are a role model. You can never drink Budweiser. You cannot be sponsored by Budweiser. But every time I watch the game, a Budweiser commercial comes yeah. on. Not only a Budweiser commercial, but you can get your favorite team's beer. I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> like, I got my Seahawk middle light. I'm just like, it doesn't... Yeah. <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, Dave, uh, I saw you on Amy Goodman uh, a couple years ago. This was right after the famous uh, Russell Wilson versus Marshawn Lynch uh, decision that ended the Ooh. Super Bowl that year. Could you yeah. revisit that, uh, your analysis of that mm. back then? Oh. And, uh, and what do you, it, do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or is this just a total can My of worms? Goodness. I don't know. And Man. then I, I was curious how Michael. You're Howell like the guy things. at my Passover dinner who's like, "Let's talk about Israel." <laughs> um, my goodness. Yeah, I know that talk. We do that all the time. Yeah, right. like it's Christmas. Let's talk about Kwanzaa. Yeah. Straight. <laughs> yeah, um, straight up, and I, I have no problem saying this at all. Is that. I thought the decision to not give it to Marshawn Lynch at the goal line was a bad decision. Um, I, I think it was a bad decision. You think it was a bad decision? But at the end of the day, you live and die by the gun in the NFL. Because yeah. if he caught the ball, we would not be having this we conversation. We wouldn't have this conversation. And it would have been the greatest passing ever. I and, think, and I think when you when – we all could talk about what would have happened if we would have done this. What if the, he would have fumbled a snap? Yeah. And we were when they got the ball. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's always a what if in the in sports. What if he went left instead of going right? Yeah. You know? And it was also this idea, and Marshawn Lynch talked about him this himself in an off season in an interview he did. It was like a crazy it was like he was doing an interview like in Serbia. Like it was yeah. it's a very interesting I, YouTube. I, I told Marshawn the other day, I was like, for a guy who doesn't like TV, you have been <laughs> on TV a lot. <laughs> He bust out laughing. I'm like, you have been. I'm tired of watching you now. <laughs> and it, it's just this idea of, it, of this narrative of the NFL about who they want to be the hero and this idea that if Marshawn scores that touchdown, then it's Marshawn Lynch who's, you know, he's about that business and him being the Super Bowl MVP and him scoring the winning touchdown and about if whether or not psychologically there was a barrier to people wanting to see that get pushed through. Of Marshawn being the guy, I, man, I get what you're saying. Glory. I mean, there, I feel like there was a, there was this whole argument, you know, within that. Was it, was, was Russell Wilson? He had this marketability, and he was this type of person that role model. Then you had this guy, this, this guy from the hood, this guy with gold teeth, and 
he is, you know, he is, he's what people are scared of. If you walk in, in the elevator, a lot of people will, will go the other way. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's the kind of argument I felt like people were having around America. And there's this issue between, like, good black and bad black within yeah. a lot of things, you know. But at the end of the day, I just think it was just a call. You know, Pete called the call. Now, I don't think he really came down to the issue of he, Pete's a winner. I know Pete, like the back, he's a competitor. He just wanted to win the game, and he thought that play would have won the game at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. No, I hear that. It's, um... But, you know, the media is good at what they do. You know, you yeah, got to make something. You got to have a year's worth of, you know, something to talk about. Yeah. I get it, Dave. I get it. Yeah. I, I have this weird feeling that 2017 is going to be the year of the Seahawks' revenge against the Patriots at the Super Bowl. I just... I don't, I just, I just like the weirdest, it, it's just, it's just like this thing yeah, that keeps I popping in my head. It pops in my head too. Okay. <laughs> well, before, before the next question, do me a favor, man. Take a picture of us just as we're sitting up here. Yeah, you'll do great. Well, he's so ready for that. He's like, I've been waiting. I took 700 selfies today. Yeah, no selfies. You just take a picture of us as we're talking. Thank you, sir. This is important. Yes, ma'am. Being the athlete that you are, are you willing or uh, prepared to turn down endorsement deals I've, I've to done support it. your belief? I've done it already. I've done it tons of time. Like for my organization, I do, for my foundation, we do a lot of stuff with food. And I've turned down tons of lucrative opportunities simply because I don't, I just don't, I don't agree with what, what they're mm -hmm. selling. And it's like, I can't go out there and support, you know, this sugary diet. I mean, this. You know, McDonald's, you know, the, I, know the, I, don't, I don't eat McDonald's, so why would I go in a commercial and all of a sudden I'm selling this issue, selling this idea to kids that the way that I get ready for the game is eating McDonald's, and that's just not yeah. the truth, you know. No. I, I eat organic, I'm not going to lie. Uh, right on. So it's like, so, but, so I've turned down tons of, I've turned down tons of deals simply because it's not who I am. And, you know, that's the, ch I mean, at the end of the day, you got such a light, you got a, a short chance to make a lot of money, and then. There's certain times in your life where you got to make a choice, and I think a lot of guys don't want to make that choice. That choice is a hard choice because at the end of the day, you have to you have to live up to it, you know. Right on, man. Give me my phone back. He's trying to take my. Look at through the don't don't stroll left. He's no. all, Dave's all like. <laughs> Round of applause for the young man at the front. Thank you, sir. Taking all kinds of pictures in your phone. Uh, this is to send my son, who doesn't really believe that I'm here talking to you right yeah. now. It's just, I, I'm serious. Oh, next question. Uh, after the election, we saw um, from NBA coaches like Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich, and Stan Van Gundy a lot of uh, really outspoken statements against, against basically Trump and the evangelical movement, etc. And I was wondering what, ex what you think makes the NBA more inherently progressive than the, uh, than the NFL, which seems to be almost regressive. Because I think, personally, I think if the um, Donald Sterling thing happened in the NFL, there's no way he would ever have lost his team. Yeah. Mm. Well, before you answer, can I just say really quick, unless I'm wrong, and I think I'm absolutely right, this is Moose Bigelow on Twitter. He's like my favorite Twitter follow, Moose Bigelow. <laughs> Thanks, Moose. <laughs> awesome, man. Oh, please. I mean, I... I do I do I feel like the NFL is progressive? I think they're no. I think they re, they react to what's going on in America. If if there's a problem, they're going to be on the reaction reaction side of. It. They're not going to go out and do the research and find out what needs to be changed. Do I feel like it's their Do I feel like it's their job to do that? No. Mm -hmm. 
but do I feel like it's the job of the players to keep up with it? Because at the end of the day, the NFL is going to be what it is. It's, it's a business. It's a business of something. And at the end of the day, the players are the players are the ones who have to bring up the issues, and we have to keep bringing them and knocking on the door until somebody opens that door. And that's, I mean, that's how you create change. There has to be enough people willing to, you know, like for example, like talking to Aaron Rodgers, and you know, he he always tells me like, man, Michael, I wish that, you know, that I wish I can do what you do. You know what I'm saying? Because at the end of the day, you know, he's he's, come, he's from a different part, and, and he, he does he want to stand on that line? You know what I'm saying? And enough players have to go and stand on that line to create change. And until that happens, they will never do. We we can't hold the NFL accountable if we're not being accountable. Wow, you know, and it's interesting too. I got gotta say, like, if you look at the athletes this NFL season who stood up, I think the NBA has athletes have a lot to learn from what the NFL athletes have done over the last four or five months. I mean, it's yeah. been incredible. It's incredible. It's, it's been it's been it's been life changing to you know to grow up and watch um, you know Malcolm Malcolm X and learn about Martin Luther King and learn about all these people that just did act, activist things and now you know Jim Brown and you know. You know so many great players, so many great athletes, you know, and then now you put in this, this time period, this time frame of where you have to stand up and make a change. I yeah. think it's like, I mean, it also shows that America is not as progressive as people think it is because those people were doing that 40, 50 years ago, you know, why, why is the same issues coming up now? Oh, it's stunning. It's when, stunning. Yeah. It's super, it's super stunning because at the end of it all, it's just like, when is enough going to be changed? And I think, there's so much that goes on and not enough people are, you know, willing to make a change. But now I feel like it's going to be a change because mm-hmm. I feel like now it's like it's not just like African-Americans. It's not Mexicans. It's not white people. It's not Chinese people. It's not it's not Asian. It's not, it's not Indian. It's people in general standing together and are like, no, we're not going to not. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen anymore. And I think that's how you make change. It can't just be like one part of it. To, to disagree, it has to be the whole to say that we need change, and I mm-hmm. think that's where it's going now. That, that's why I get so frustrated when people talk about the next four years with Trump in office and they act like it's already done, that we're headed towards this incredible period of reaction, yeah. as if we have nothing to say about exactly. whether that takes place well, or not. I mean, I think As if every, we're not a factor in that. Well, I mean, people want to consider themselves as being powerless. I mean, but it's, that's not the truth. We have so much power. We have so much creativity. We have so much ability to actually go out. I mean, now we live in a society where people don't even say hello to people anymore. It's like, mm-hmm. how can you want to make change? You can't even say shit hello. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't even open the door for old people no more. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, it's like times have changed, you know, and we have a, ch- a chance to make a complete change, and we don't have to, what Trump does doesn't have to be, you know, I, I try to look at it as one of those things like, like, he is the president. Let Not let me go into this this mindset of where nothing good can come from it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I have to go into the mindset of, like, there has to be something good to come from this, or we have to go out there and make something good from it. There you go. Absolutely. I... I got. I got to say, just because folks, the, the lines along, we're we're definitely not going to get it to everybody. We only have time for a couple more questions. We're going to do the best we can, but please go right ahead. Hi. And then the gentleman here. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, in light of the Ray Rice incident, <laughs> I'll call it, um, brought to the forefront a conversation again about sexual assault and and domestic violence. Um, and what do you feel, kind of, is the the male's role in being a role model 
um, on how to act and standing up to men who are misbehaving <laughs> in that way. And uh, if you might, I'd like to hear from both of you if you. Oh, I, um, me, I, I think I just, I think what a man has supposed to be is, has been evolving. You know, you look at the 30s, what a man was supposed to do. I know I talked to my grandpa, what a man's supposed to do. And then it's like, now it's a whole different time of what a man's supposed to be. But I know one thing a man's not supposed to do is to beat a woman. And that's just something that the NFL had to stand up for. I mean, there were so many. This has been, the crazy part about it is that player, there's been players that have beat their wives way before this. You know what I'm saying? But it took, it took the actual the social media to actually make change. And it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't the NFL that made it change. See, this is when I say people have power because it was America that made this, that made it happen because they were the ones that were outraged that this incident happened and mm. there was nothing happened from it. And mm. at the end of the day, I just feel like the NFL has to had to make a stance and they mm. made a good stance of making sure that people don't do it anymore. But at the end of the day, it's like, how could you put your hands on a woman or put your hands on anybody should never be acceptable. Mm. No, that's right. I, I just interviewed. Uh, I, I sometimes assume all NFL people know each other, but DeAndre Levy, who yeah, you're going to yeah, see yeah. this weekend for Detroit. So if y'all are going to root against Detroit, and that's awesome, but show some love for DeAndre Levy because one of the things that he's doing is people might know this, but in Wayne County, where Detroit is, they found hundreds and hundreds of rape kits that were just being left there to collect dust. That and it was horrifying. And so what he did was he stood up and he's raising money to test the rape kits and he's speaking out That's against crazy, rape man. and and putting himself out there and talking about like the importance of and this is the way he puts it about not being a bystander. So if you hear somebody talking about women in a way that's violent, it's it's so speak crazy. Speak out against it. It's so crazy because it's like you're in a time of like where you, what you do is more important than what's going on sometimes. And I feel like, you know, you come, they'll have people come talk to us and it's like, what do you do if a woman is sitting there getting beat? Hey, you should not do anything because you, it might come back and she might try to sue you. I'm like, shit, the woman's getting beat. Like, I need to call the police yeah. and do something to make change. And it's like, everybody's worried about what might happen at the end. And it's like, mm -hmm. that shit sucks. Yeah. Yeah. C cover your ass is not a, a good not, life not philosophy. Do the right, no, it's like, it's like, and I'm like, if I see a woman getting something happen, I'm gonna try to make some, make some, make sure I call the police or make sure I'm there to something to his finish or to he gets in trouble. I'm just gonna try to help out as much as I can. Yeah. Jump in the middle of it. I'm just like, why you? How do? How am I supposed to just sit there and let that happen? Uh, yes, sir. All right. Um, my question. I like also, your shirt too. Oh, thanks. Do <laughs> uh, <laughs> people can people see the shirt? <laughs> It's kind of amazing. Do you want to describe it for everybody? Or you... It's just uh, Tupac. <laughs> yeah, that's all. <laughs> Sorry I brought attention to your shirt. <laughs> I don't know if Goodell would appreciate it, but... No, he won't. He doesn't appreciate anything. Like <laughs> all right. Uh, my question is for both of you guys as well. Um, going back to the, um, the locking arms... At the, at the game, you know, uh, showing unison with Kaepernick and everything. Um, you know, if I'm putting myself out there and being honest, you know, I called it pretty weak. Um, but I had a lot of friends that... But my question is, what did you do? What? 
Because we stood out in front of millions of people and we stood out, we got ridiculed by tons yeah. of people, but at the end of the day, we stayed true to who we were. Right, right. And the real question I think I'm people not... should really ask is, what can I do to be to change something? Because everybody's looking at us to yeah, make yeah. the change, but it's really upon you to go out there and make a change, but I ain't trying to tear you down, but keep going. No, no, no. I... <laughs> I agree. And like the more I kind of discussed it with people, like I kind of came around a little bit more and hearing you talk about it um, definitely made me think a lot different about it. Um, but I know Dave was pretty hard on you as well. Oh, so, uh, well, yeah, no, no, no. Well, I, I know, saying, but it's because it's cause one of those you, things where, the well, I think the, people didn't really ask us why we did it. They just okay. seen so, us do it and then yeah. they just talked about it. Yeah. yeah. So, let me I just ask say, my question oh, yeah. so we could keep it brief. Well, let me let me just say too that like one of the very cool things about the last couple of days in talking to Jesse and now talking to Michael has honestly changed my thinking about what happened. And I think there's always a risk when you do a gesture that somebody can then take and commodify and alter the message. So like the NFL Network can show the Seahawks linking arms and say a message of unity without saying what it's unity for, yeah. which is a lot tougher to do when you're like raising a fist during the anthem or putting down your knee during the anthem, because then there's no mistaking that you're taking a stance against the flag and whatnot. But it's like the, the way to think about it in terms of how do we, or, like, because you got to think of the locker room like a workplace. And so you've been thinking to yourself, how do I bring the maximum number of people in my workplace, even if they're right wing, even if they're white, even if they th see the police and think, oh, that's officer friendly. How do we bring them all along to a higher point of consciousness instead of just thinking, how do I make the most social media impact? Yeah. Not that that's not important and not that that's not real, but I honestly like have a different kind of appreciation of what went into that moment in Seattle. And I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting next to this person right now. So you answered my question for you, and then I was just wondering, uh, Michael, if, if, uh, if it was up to you and you got to decide what you guys would do on the sidelines, what, what would your approach be? I actually helped make the idea up of the Lincoln Arms. I thought, for me, it was one of those things where I wanted to include everybody because the social, it was so many people, like I said, so many different personalities, and I think people failed to realize that. When to, we didn't just want to have just the black players doing something, because, you know, that, that would have been, that would have been great, and we would have kept a great message, too, not saying that that was wrong, but we wanted to include everybody, because there was, was guys that didn't want to take a knee, but wanted to do something, and we didn't want to be divided on what we all wanted to do. We all wanted to make change. At the end of the day, the Lincoln Arms was the thing that everybody wanted to do. And when, as a man, sometimes you got to respect what, what other people's issues are. And But the, at the core of it all, like I said, everybody wanted to do something. Mm, that's great. And congrats on the new contract. Thank you, man. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We, I, I, with, with deep apologies, we got time just for these last two folks right here. And, we'll and it's, you can go do three. Four, four. If you're having fun, that's no, cool. I'm, I, mean, I, I was got, thinking gotta you go got to get got, some rest. I got to get 10 hours of sleep. That's just yeah. Okay. I mean, you, you got something to do this weekend. Yeah, 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 I, go. I got yeah. a couch to sit on this weekend and watch you do what you do. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic here. So. Yeah. But, All right, uh, Mr. Bennett. So I am wondering, right now you said, obviously you're on this amazing platform where you can voice and, and, and talk about all these social injustices and they're heard. But when, uh, when you do enter retirement, um, what are you going to do? And also what are you going to... Uh, 
help encourage younger players coming into the league, um, maybe even undrafted players that don't that aren't necessarily heard of, um, and encourage them to to help um, cross that line or step on that line. And also, when you're in retirement, how are you going to continue uh, with that? Well, I'm just going to continue being me. It's, for me, it's not an act. This is this is our, this is what I'm living. It's not like all of a sudden I go to this spot and I'm not. I'm just going to change. I'm I'm continuing living the life that I'm living right now. Like I said. This is a life of doing exactly what I always wanted to do, create a foundation and be able to create change, you know, keep working with the young guys. You got to understand, I was an undrafted free agent, too. So I, we, we want to create, you know, a society or a locker room um, environment where guys can, you know, you know, voice their opinion. And that's what and that's what we're trying to head at now is, you know, if you guys got something you want to talk about, we're here to support you. We're here to make something for you to do. And while doing that with the NFL, we have created so many different avenues through the programs that we've created, you know, for guys to be able to do what they need to do. Okay. Also, what's what's with the shoulder pads? I got to know. What, what's, uh, what's with the shoulder pads? I don't like protection. I hear you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Just a joke. Goodness. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Michael, we know you're from the South. Dave, you've used y'all through this whole yeah, interview. I thought you were from Texas. I'm from New York City. Yeah, New York City. <laughs> New York City. Okay. I'm a hybrid, man. Well, then maybe this question is best Wait, for Michael. Tex Goldberg. Go ahead. You've been talking about regional differences, uh, areas of America that are different. What are you, two or three main differences you see from the South and uh, the Seattle area, <laughs> Northwest? You can have some fun. <laughs> Black people, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm, it's, <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm joking. But no, I think it's just a different environment. I think how I look at Seattle, Seattle's or, or the Northwest is an area where I feel like there wasn't that slave civil war type of environment. So this was a, I feel like this was an area where it was a lot of new people coming in and creating new things. And in the South, it was just this thing that's still going on, this, you know, it's this line that's still there, but people don't really talk about it. And the South is just different, you know, it's just, it's definitely, a, you know, more of a, a black and white type of thing in the, where growing up in the South. And here, I don't feel like it's, it's like that. I feel like it's, it's more of an open, you know, people are more open and people are more liberal and being able to voice their opinions in the South is, I feel like th there wasn't that type of platform for people to do that. And, the, and you know, there's, I mean, I mean, I grew up in Texas, and in, in 2000, there, were, there was somebody hung, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, in Jasper, Texas. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot different, you know. And for me to come up here, it's, it's, I know there's so many players I see that played in the South, and now they moved here, and they don't move back, you know. So there's, that says a lot about Seattle, you know. So, you know, the South is just different. I, I, there's no comparison between the two, you know. There's just – it's you can't compare – you know, this this area that's been a certain way for hundreds of years and they still have this, you know, you got to think 1950, 1960 wasn't long ago and there's still certain areas that you, you can't go to, you know, so it's just different. Yeah, I, I interviewed George Foreman who's from Houston. Yeah. And he said to me that uh, when Muhammad Ali joined the black Muslims, it scared all of us. And I said, why? Because he said he was a Muslim? And he said, no, we didn't know what a Muslim was. It was because he was saying he was black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He said he's going to get all of us in trouble. Yeah, that's the truth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. Oh. Uh, you guys have been talking about racism in the NFL all discussion. Uh, one that I I've, haven't heard a lot because it's old by now. What do you feel about the Washington, D.C. football team's name? 
I'm from DC. Well, that's a good. It's crazy because you know, my my brother-in-law is Native American. I, I mean, I think I don't, I think that it's a, I don't think the name should be there. I think it's 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 a, it's a name that you know. You can, it, I mean, you can't. I mean, you think about Native Americans. All you can do is you know shed a tear for all the trials and tribulations that they have done dealt with. You know, the, a country that used to be theirs is not theirs anymore. And for them to look at a logo as just just, I mean, it's as racist as it can be. You know, I mean, I have, I've never seen anything more racist. I definitely think they should change it. I don't know, I don't know what it's going to take and how, how long it's going to take it, but it, it would be, that's another thing. If, if the name needs to be changed, you know who has to change the name? The fans. If the fans don't go to the game, that name will change the next day. But everybody can say they have an issue with it. But that stadium is still filled, filled up every Sunday. So until people are like, you know what, I'm not watching the Redskins anymore because they need to change their name. I swear, I, I bet you if, if they lose a couple million dollars of a couple games, they're not good anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but if they were to lose money, it would change. It would change the day. It would change the same day. That's why I say people have power. We think we don't have power, but we have all the power because we control what is happening. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. As someone who lives in D.C., let me just say thank you no, for saying that. It's disgusting. It really is And the is name disgusting. needs to change. Yeah. Uh, it's, and the, the, it's, it's a symbol of genocide. It, it, and the it idea is. that we celebrate genocide every Sunday by going to a football game, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a monstrosity. And the fact that it was named by an owner who was an arch-segregationist and the team was the last team to integrate in the National Football League makes it even more disgusting. It makes it so disgusting. Yeah. Also, I mean, Dan Snyder, the owner of the team, is Jewish. I mean, if he likes identification, cultural appropriation and identification so much, he should just call the team the Foreskins. It's like, I mean. Think, what would the logo about, be, though? What the is, logo would be crazy. That would be, <laughs> we'll just put a whale on there. Yo, th- think, think about the hoodies. Yes. <laughs> that would be, I don't know about that one. Is that, so how are you? You got time? Oh, got one more. Yeah, come on. All right, let's. We're, we're keeping this. We're sorry to folks online. We're keeping it short. We'll, a couple more folks. Yeah. Last year, the University of Missouri football team, college football team, went on strike in support of the black students at the university uh, against the president who was a racist. And unlike uh, situations in factories where the owner can threaten to move to Taiwan or to uh, uh, you know, Mexico or wherever, they can't move the football team to Mexico and they'd, use, they'd lose a million a weekend and the guy got fired. It was an amazing example of collective power that is untapped among potentially in the future for acts of resistance among college football players. And I know Richard Sherman had talked about the fact that he thought players in college should be unionized and it seems to me that that might be an area where uh, NFL players in the future can help those organizations and, and create power that can uh, manifest itself against racism and for, uh, for, for the better America, for the better angels of our nature. Yeah. Mm. Well, You've I've, spoken about that Was that, that a question? Well. Or you, I, feel like you, <laughs> I feel like you gave us an answer. <laughs> yeah. Good, good well, point. What do you think of that, Dave and, and Michael? <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Me- mea culpa, you got me. But no, that's good stuff. Do you think that's a, do you think that's something that we'll see more of 
and that we should see more of? I just uh, throw that out. I mean, I think you'll see more of it. You take Garfield High School, you take all these kids are starting to realize it, that they have power. And, you know, you look at the 60s when people start to realize that they have power, things started to change. And you see kids now, you know, schools changing, people are changing because they're realizing that they have power. And I think that's going to just keep growing because with social media and people before people didn't have to have, have to have a conversation with the president didn't have to you know speak to anybody because the, he was untouchable. But now with social media, he's very touchable because he has to answer to what people are what, what people are saying about the school. So I think people using their power and their platform and social media is definitely going to make things change a lot in the next generation. Right on. So last one. Hi, Michael. I ran into you at a Cascade Bicycle Club breakfast yeah. last year. Where you? Uh, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. And uh, Michael was nice enough to give the keynote there, and that helped raise a lot of money for the Cascade Bike Club. And I brought my, uh, you remember those T-shirts that somebody printed up that showed uh, yeah. Michael riding the bicycle? Yeah, I didn't make any money from that, but keep going. Right, <laughs> right. So I brought mine, and, and he was nice enough to sign it. And then he mentioned that he didn't even have one. So I went out and got him one and brought oh, you man. one here today. Let me see who manufactured that so I can get my money. It's, Thank you, man. It's I appreciate two XL. Oh yes, yeah, so I actually slimmed down. You know, XL. Oh, <laughs> thank you, man. I appreciate that. Right on. And, and, and that, last like, question. You got to give. Yes. Yeah, oh, this is this has been just a, a great conversation. So, thank you. What's your name? Uh, I'm Dr. Susan Kleiner. I'm a high thank performance you. nutritionist. Oh, wow. I know your uh, friend Bernard Watkins very oh, yeah. very well, and I've worked with him. So I, I'm familiar with your organization for girls to go um, and learn about STEM. The, what I do is I work with all athletes, but I particularly love working and supporting athletic females and female athletes. And we know since Title IX, young yeah. girls and women have had so much more opportunity that when they get to participate in sports, they're more successful in the job and, and in their personal lives and for the rest of their lives, for their health and fitness. But the problem in the world of female athletics is that while young boys and men are told to get bigger, and that's part of their body image, young girls and women are always told to get smaller. And that's very misogynistic messaging within the world of female athletics. And so with your three girls, I, I wouldn't doubt that they have athletic genes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, do you have you are you aware of any of this um, and the kind of messaging you know the body shaming that Serena Williams has gone through the, yeah. the horrific stories that have come out of, of that these women who are great athletes mm -hmm. what they have been told what they have had to live through and what they've had to discover in taking care of their own bodies and their own lives and how. Um, you see the world of female athletics. We even now have a professional women's mm. football team. Yeah. In but they're Seattle. in lingerie, though. <laughs> if that's not misogynistic, I don't know what is. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, well, so, so we, you know, in all, you know, the, the NBA has started to reach yeah. out to the WNBA, and, and we're seeing a little more. But, but really the story is um, the messaging to little girls yeah. about their health and wellness and fitness and how they see themselves in the way that young boys, you know, are told about taking care of themselves. What, what are your thoughts on that and, well, and, and impacting that from your platform? Well, you know, me have, I mean, having daughters, I think you, you 
I mean, you see that, and you see watch TV, and all you see is skinny women and bikinis, and then you watch another commercial, and then there's another skinny woman eating a burger. I'm like, but that's that's called juniors, so I don't know if that's gonna make you look like that. But I think I think it's a hard, it's a it's a it's a crazy issue because it's one of those things where you know not only in sports, it's just the world in general. You know, women are supposed to look a certain way. Women are supposed to act a certain way. Women are supposed to dress a certain way. And, you know, how do you change that? I, I'm not sure. All I try to do as a father is to ensure that my daughters know that however they look, they're beautiful to me. And I think that's, the, that's, how, that's how I try to make my impact is, like, you know, try to make sure that my kids are, you know, well-equipped to understand that they are beautiful women no matter how they look, how they dress, that they should be happy within who they are. And how, how do we not take the last question? I know. How do we not, not I mean, take look, the last question? I mean, look at question? this. It's unbelievable. Are, they, are they, you, all, you all the same question? No, I don't think so, but. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can't reach the mic. Can, can you, you reach the mic? You got your extra uh, books you sit on? Yeah. <laughs> Dave got a car seat in a car. We bring it up. <laughs> Some phone books. Yes. Due to the electoral college, a voter in Ohio would have more power than a voter in, say, Seattle. What do you think of Wait, did you think of this question or somebody else told you this question? Because <laughs> whoever told you that, they need to come up here right now. I'm joking. Uh, go ahead and repeat your question. What do you think of the power imbalance because of the Electoral College? Gracious. Um, okay. All right, we'll, we'll, we're going we're gonna to run through the juniors real quick. Um, <laughs> she won the National Spelling Bee, too. Yeah, I'll... I'll I'll just say very quickly, I mean, the Electoral College, historically and factually, is a legacy of preserving slavery in this country yeah. to give disproportionate power to slave states. And so if we believe in this country that slavery belongs in the dustbin of history, then the Electoral College belongs in the dustbin of history as well. What he said. Yeah. And now we've got that, two, two young men behind you. We, Two young men behind you. Yes, that was a great question. That Thank was a great question. Are you guys asking together? Uh, no. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> Run through them quick, young men, did please. You, did you think of racism when you were a kid? Did I think of racism when I was a kid? I mean, I, I, had, I, I grew up in a place that's just different from here. So it was something that I seen. You know, um, my, I'm originally from Louisiana, so. Huh? Oh, I didn't say it didn't exist in Seattle. I just said it's different. <laughs> it's trust me. If you grew up in some parts of Louisiana and Texas, you you definitely would know that there's a sign outside that said you can't come in. So you know it's a lot different. So I grew up, you know, seeing knowing that there was racism, um, but at the same time, I still grew up in a in a neighborhood that had a whole bunch of different you know cultures. Whether it was kids from Africa, kids from Mexico, kids from all over the world. And so did it bother me? Yeah, it bothered me that there was a lot of racism going on. But at the same time, I got a chance to grow up in another part in the same city that was, I got to grow up and immerse myself in different cultures. And I think that made me a, a better person growing up today. Damn, thank you for that. Thank and you for that. The, the, the I know racism is in Seattle. She act like I didn't know that. <laughs> but I, but to what, I'm not trying to like what, I'm not trying to say that Seattle doesn't have these issues or these issues are not, you know, at the core of things in Seattle. But all I'm trying to say is that 
it's different. It's, unless you grew up in the, the South, it's just different. You know, I can't explain it to you if you grew up in Seattle. You know, it's just a different place. It's a different, it's a different type of environment. And there's nothing, it's nothing I can tell you or show you, you know, the towns that my parents grew up in in Louisiana. And, you know, you can't, you know, it's, I just can't explain it to you, you know. Oh, can say your, since you're the last speaker, you got to say your name and uh, and your question, please. Right. Harry Potter. Uh, my yeah. name's Jack. It's not. Uh, he's, he's not Harry Potter. I That's know, not nice. Joking. Come on. <laughs> but, um, That's funny. Going back to your touchdown dance, are you working on a new one? Oh, there's your last question. Uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, in the playoffs, it's kind of one of those things where you don't want to get fined or flagged because the games are so. <laughs> It's so close, and, you know, I don't want to be the, the person that, because of something that was so selfish or something I did, put us in a bad situation. So at this point in the season, it's kind of one of those things where you just want to win the game. I don't even care about the stats. Wow. Uh, Michael Bennett. All right. Thank, thank you, you guys. for being you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring a conversation with Michael Bennett and Dave Zirin. They spoke at Town Hall Seattle on January 5th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.